This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 171. Hi, I'm Todd Henry, author of Louder Than Words, Harness the Power of Your Authentic Voice. One of my favorite voices belongs to this guy. It's Jeff Brown and the Read to Lead podcast. We put so much pressure on ourselves to know our next move, have everything figured out. And it's so much easier if you can just say, okay, what is the one next step I could take this week? Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Hi there. Hope you're doing well. I am Jeff and this is the podcast that is dedicated to, you guessed it, your personal and professional growth. We'll dig into leadership and also topics like personal growth, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, and entrepreneurship. Let me ask you a question. Are you even a little bit uncertain as to whether or not your current gig is the right fit? If that's the case, then it might be time to start thinking about your next move. In fact, in the new world of work, our guest today says it's the only move that matters. Her name is Jenny Blake. And she's the author of Pivot. The only move that matters is your next one. And I'm going to be asking Jenny to describe her five-stage pivot framework she's developed. I hope to at least get into four of the five today. What's wrong with asking yourself how questions when it comes to your major decisions? How to make yourself discoverable and why it matters and much, much more. In fact, a couple of the questions I plan to ask Jenny come directly from members of my private members-only book club called Read to Lead University. That's just one of the many perks when you're a part of the Read to Lead University book club. In fact, Pivot is our May selection, and we'll be meeting later this week to talk through it as a group live online and, just as importantly, help one another implement into our own lives the things that we've learned from reading Jenny's book, Pivot. That is at the heart of Read to Lead University. It's not just about reading books, but putting into action the things that we're reading so that we can change our lives for the better and the lives of those around us. If that sounds enticing, exciting to you, I hope you'll take advantage of one of the openings that we have right now, just a few. You can find out more by visiting readtoleaduniversity.com. That's readtoleaduniversity.com. We'd love to have you as part of the Read to Lead University book club. We have, of course, many people in the book club from the U.S., but also represented is the U.K., uh, Switzerland, Australia, even India, and many other countries. Uh, oh, and Canada, too. I can't leave out Canada. Find out more at readtoleaduniversity.com. Jenny Blake is a career and business strategist and international speaker who helps people build sustainable, dynamic careers they love. Sounds like fun to me. Uh, she pivoted from studying political science and communication at UCLA to become the first employee at a political polling startup in Silicon Valley. Uh, She then moved to Google, where she spent over five years in training and career development while also writing her first book, a book called Life After College. And she left Google in 2011 to take her consulting business full time. And her latest book, the one we're talking about today, Pivot, The Only Move That Matters Is Your Next One. It was released in September of 2016. Uh, I'm late to the party. I apologize for that. But Jenny, welcome to the Read and Lead podcast. 
Jeff, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, I have to ask right out of the gate, uh, how does one exactly work up the nerve to to leave uh, what would seemingly be, I guess, a cushy job at Google to to venture out into something that you didn't necessarily know was going to be successful? <laughs> yeah, I I didn't know. I don't have an answer of whether it was the right decision <laughs> or not, but I was burning out more often than I knew was good for me. Mm. I was working full-time at Google, very intense, while running a blog and getting ready to launch my book on the side. So by the time the Life After College book was launching in 2011, I was just barely skidding into the finish line <laughs> of, of being able to juggle everything. Mm. And I took a three-month unpaid leave to do a self-funded book tour. And I thought, I mean, every day I wondered what the right thing to do would be. But I quickly noticed that my side hustle was taking all day every day. It started to become clear that I don't know how I ever did both. And <laughs> I have to pick one because it wouldn't be fair to either project to try and do both much longer. So ultimately, a friend asked me a question. He said, how would you feel if a year from now nothing had changed? And when I thought about if I was trying to tell people to live big and take great leaps and all of these things, then how could I do that with integrity if I wasn't willing to do that in my own life? So I used the Jeff Bezos, he calls it his regret minimization framework. Mm. He says, you know, what will he look back on his life when he's 80 and will he regret this decision or not taking this risk? So for me, I also felt like I would forever regret not trying my hand at running my own business. I would be okay. I, was, I finally got to the point where I would be okay spending my six months of pivot runway, everything I had saved. Mm. And if I didn't earn a dollar and I had to go back and find another job, fine. At least I know that I tried. Uh, in preparation for this, I was listening to another interview uh, that you did. You said in that interview at one point, something along the lines that you, that you wondered if, if something was wrong with you. You seem to want to pivot uh, every couple of years. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I worked at a startup company when I was still a student at UCLA. I worked, I left school, worked there two years, hit a plateau. You know, the conversation I regret the most is one I never had with the founder there to mm. say, hey, I'm getting bored. Mm. And then I got over to Google, dream job. Two years in, I thought I wanted to leave, pivoted internally from the AdWords training team to the career development team. Once again, two and a half years or so in, that's when my book was launching. It was time to leave. And then and then I kind of rode the adrenaline of leaving for two years. And when I was running my own business, I wanted to prove everybody wrong. So I was launching courses and doing all this stuff in the first year. But then I became known as the girl who left Google. I had no clue what would come next. So once again, I was struggling with this question. And I felt every time it felt very serious. And the last time I didn't have a steady paycheck to fund that exploration. So it kept it felt like I kept experiencing what people would call a midlife crisis. But in 2007, we introduced the term, not me, but someone else <laughs> quarter life crisis. Uh. And it just felt like maybe I'm one of these entitled millennials that the media keeps talking <laughs> about, and I'll never be happy. Or conclusion number two is maybe all of us are experiencing this what's next question more frequently. And because of the changes in our economy and technology, automation, outsourcing, we're all going to have to ask and answer this more frequently. And so as I started to do research, I really found the latter to be true. And when we hear that word, we often think or assume, I think, um, that that means, you know, pivot means starting a brand new career, starting a brand new job or leaving a job and venturing out on your own. But pivoting doesn't necessarily mean that, right? I mean, I mean, I think back to my last job uh, that I had that I left four years ago. I worked there 14 years in an industry that's relatively volatile. And as I look back on that, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I can see where 
uh, though I'd love to say uh, it was strategic on my part. Maybe it was instinctual. I'm not sure. But I pivoted numerous times within that organization. And one of the main reasons I was able to stay there <laughs> as, as long as I did. And, and so just clarify that or clear that up, if you would, uh, that it's, it's not always about just jumping around from, from place to place. Exactly. I'm so glad you asked. There's a couple things I found. When when startups talk about pivoting, which is what most people are familiar with when you hear the word pivot, it's often plan B, that the original strategy is failing and now they need to pivot to stay in business. YouTube used to be a video dating site. Twitter was a podcasting service. But in our careers, pivot is more of a proactive move. And and absolutely, one can pivot within their role, within their company, within their own business. So the way I define a pivot is a methodical shift in a new related direction based on a foundation of one's strengths and what is already working. Mm. So I found that one, people were pivoting as much as a product of their success as anything else, mm. that they just outgrew their previous role or career incarnation. And two, my goal was not exactly as you said, not to tell people how to do 180s in their career or <laughs> make these great leaps from, you know, if I had quit Google to become a full-time yoga teacher, <laughs> I more wanted to help people put a method to the process of asking and answering what's next. Mm. So when you're at a pivot point, when you feel a little restless and ready for something new, how can we be more methodical about mapping that out? Now, since the book has come out in a lot of speaking and workshops, I use pivot as a method to map what's next, even within the coming year. Mm. So it can be a method just to plan what success looks like and how you want to get there in a more methodical way, rather than what I felt that so many of us were doing was just thinking, oh, there must be something wrong with me. Why can't I be happy? I'm supposed to have my dream job. I want to dig into uh, some of the stages of the, of the pivot process, if we can. We don't necessarily have time to cover all of them, but I'd love to, to dig into a couple. of them. Starting with the plant stage, where you suggest we ask the questions, you know, what's working? Where do you want to end up? Uh, you hinted at some of that a moment ago. Uh, what's the primary goal of, of, of this stage, ultimately? Well, this comes from the metaphor of a basketball player, which came to me when I was struggling with my business. I didn't know what was next and didn't know how I was going to pay rent in two weeks. And when it really got down, I'd, I'd read hundreds of business, mm. fitness, finance, personal development books. I'd read everything I could get my hands on. I was always tracking new releases and none of them were paying the rent in two weeks. Mm. So this analogy of a basketball player came to me that when, it, when they, a basketball player stops dribbling, one foot stays firmly planted and that's their plant foot, their source of stability and their strength, that's their foundation, then the pivot foot can scan for passing options. Well, the biggest mistake that I made was not having a plant foot. I was running around the basketball court like a crazy person, <laughs> focusing so much on what was out there that I was missing what was already right under my feet. And I was also so focused on what I didn't know, what I didn't have, what I didn't want. None of that propelled the conversation forward. So I came to realize that go-getters, and no doubt, Jeff, anybody listening to your show, we often make the mistake that the moment we are at a pivot point, we say, what's out there? Mm. And let me problem solve this. You know, a lot of, I would guess so many of you listening are great problem solvers, and you're good at getting things done. And, and, and yet, when it comes to pivoting, it's skipping over this crucial plant stage, which, as you mentioned, is about asking, what is already working? What am I already enjoying? When do I feel most in the zone? What are my biggest strengths? And what does success look like a year from now? Even if you don't know all the specifics and you certainly don't need to know how to get there just yet, mm. how do you want to feel? What does your ideal average day look like? How do you want to learn and grow? 
what kind of impact do you want to make on your team, the company, your customers, your family, your community? And these two things, these two aspects of the plant stage become the brackets, the known variables that shape the exploration that follows so that when you're exploring and looking at what's out there, it's directly connected to what's working and what success looks like. I'm dying to ask uh, this next question. It's a, it's a very, very important question uh, among all the questions I have prepared. Trust me when I say that. Uh, <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> I'm dying to know with five stages in the pivot method and five letters in the word pivot, were you ever pressured <laughs> by your publisher to cram that into some sort of pivot-based acronym or no? Oh, I totally did. I have. I wish I could remember what they what they were. Like, um, so funny you ask that. Yeah, I spent a ton of time being like, what's the acronym here? Or even before I settled on the word pivot, you know, maybe there's some other move or, mm. or a thing that um, the, the, the three core stages that one could repeat as much as they want are plant scan pilot. Yeah. And I was like, God, there's got to be some kind of creative uh, <laughs> metaphor analogy here, but I didn't find one. So uh, <laughs> I know. A good question. We can challenge. We can put that out for everyone listening. If you come up with an acronym, let us know. Competition. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> One of the things my wife uh, teases me a great deal about is the fact that I have a uh, closet full of clothes, uh, yet I often navigate to the same four or five uh, shirts, outfits. And as I read about this whole idea of reducing decision fatigue, I was I was quite fascinated with it. Can can you share a little bit about that? And what's one way you employ that idea in in your own life? Yes. Studies have shown that just like willpower, our ability to make decisions diminishes throughout the day without proper recharging. Mm. So judges um, decide on cases differently after lunch than oh. they do when they're hungry right before lunch. So it's also called ego depletion. What it means is that as we go through our day, the more decisions we have to make, if we're not recharged, the more stressful we're going to find them and the quicker we're just going to want to just get it done. <laughs> Whatever, you know, by the end of the day, part of the research shows that People who are lower income, who are shopping at the grocery store, are more susceptible to buying items at the checkout stand. Those all that stuff that grocery store is trying to upsell you on, like <laughs> gum and candy and magazines, because they've made so many decisions throughout the grocery store about which one can I afford, what coupon applies where. By the time they get to the checkout, they're more more susceptible mm. to those last minute purchases. So the same thing is true in our careers and our day to day work. If we are bogged down by a zillion tiny questions all day long and decisions, and many of us are because I, I mentioned an HBR article that says we're essentially working in idea factories now. <laughs> so many of us work behind the computer and our widget is ideas and decisions and strategy. And then if you're also in a pivot or trying to ask bigger questions about what's next, it's going to be very stressful to try and do all of that at the same time. Just asking what's next and trying to understand a pivot, especially when there are financial considerations involved, mm. can already place a big tax on our decision fatigue <laughs> bank account, if you will. So as much as you can routinize, create routines and systems when you're going through a pivot, the better. So like you mentioned, having your same go-to outfits. <laughs> I cooked the same chili soup every day for almost three years <laughs> when I was first starting out. Now, the way I do it, I put exercise on my calendar. It's non-negotiable. Um, or I have the same morning 
routines and evening routines, same wind up rituals and wind down. And so things like that really just help help free up the mental energy so that you're not making those micro decisions all day long while grappling with pivot questions. What kind of pitfalls can can we become victim to when we ask ourselves how questions uh, as it relates to making major decisions? What do we have to look out for there? It's very natural to the moment we think, well, wouldn't it be cool if I could leave my job and start my own business? But how are you going to earn a living? You know, all of a sudden, and if it's not your own fears whispering that in your mind, then it's often friends and family and loved ones who seem to somehow become the epitome of everything we're worried about on the inside. They embody these these voices. And well, how are you going to earn a living? Well, how are you going to get clients? Well, how are you going to maintain your lifestyle? Well, what if things don't go well? And so we I call it in the book, the tyranny of the hows, Mm. that if you ask those hows too early in the process before you've crafted the vision for what success looks like, it's very easy to get discouraged and to get bogged down in details that it's not time to answer yet. So the better tactic is to note those questions. That's fine. But the more time you can spend fleshing out a vision of what success looks like, the more easily and efficiently you'll be able to answer the how questions when it's time. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about stage two scan uh, and and balancing these two sort of competing ideas, I guess, Uh, evaluating on one end your existing strengths, but being willing to to venture outside your your comfort zone at the same time. Right. Yeah. The scan stage is about looking for, so in the basketball analogy, it's like passing the ball around the court and it's looking for people, skills, and projects that are related to what you came up with in the plant stage. So the scanning, when someone is not rooted at all in the plant stage questions of what's working and what does success look like, then it's easy to be caught in what feels like analysis paralysis or compare and despair. You're scanning without a plan. There's so many options or none at all, or you're firing off a hundred resumes and not hearing anything back. So the most effective scanning, like you said, it, yes, it's about stretching and growing. That's the whole reason for a pivot or mapping what's next at all. But it's best and most effective when the people, skills, and projects are connected to either existing strengths that you want to grow and double down on or existing things that are working. If someone's self-employed, it might be favorite types of clients. So you're scanning for, well, who is just fits this profile that I already know I love working with or plant what's working. Maybe you're getting a ton of clients from referrals. Okay, scan. Who? How else can I grow my referral marketing method? And then also connecting scan to the one-year vision. So what does success look like in a year? Okay, great. Well, what projects or skills or courses could I take that would most help me get there? So now the scanning is very targeted and it can be less overwhelming than if you're just scanning straight away without understanding the plant stage. Something I wish more people understood the importance of is, I think you frame it as making yourself discoverable. Can, can you speak to that and why that's such an important thing to take into account? This is the analogy that just like our Bluetooth devices, we have to turn both of them on, make them discoverable, and then they can pair with each other. In a career sense, it's very hard for anyone to pair with you if you're not discoverable. Mm. And I think, you know, networking is somewhat of a dirty word. <laughs> uh, same nowadays, I think even the word platform is kind of a dirty word mm. that gives people the heebie-jeebies like, <laughs> oh, you need a platform. But in some way, shape, or form, those who have what I call public original thinking – 
So you're thinking, you're original, and you're putting it out there for people to read or see. That's an advantage. But even becoming discoverable could be something like sending an email to your network to say, hey, I'm in transition or hey, I'm my side business is taking off and I'm looking to grow it even further. Here's the type of clients I'm looking for. If you know anyone, please pass along this email. And so it's doing activities that are summarizing what's what you're looking for and then inviting people to help you. And even if they don't have a solution or a connection straight away, you're now on their radar. So maybe now, three weeks later, if they come across a job opening or something that might be a fit, they think, oh, uh-huh, Jeff just asked me about that a few weeks ago. I should put them in touch. I, I'm often surprised at, at the percentage of people, it seems, Jenny, who assume that um, sharing uh, your ideas and your uh, uh, maybe this is another dirty word or dirty phrase, thought leadership on a particular uh, topic uh, is for those who, who want to work for themselves. If, if I'm working for a company, I don't need any sort of front facing platform, but that's not necessarily true, right? No. And especially because you may not stay at that company forever by choice or by circumstance. Mm. So it reorgs, you know, I joke that at Google, we were reorging more than we were orging, <laughs> that there was very little org. We, if anyone was, was stressed by a reorg, you could be sure that the only thing you could know is that we'll probably be reorging again <laughs> in a few months or even weeks. Mm. So my friend Julie is a great example. She used to work at Google with me. Then she pivoted got recruited to work at a hedge fund. While at the hedge fund, she wrote a book called The Work Revolution. And Julie loves, she's high levels. You know, at that time, she was a senior vice president at this hedge fund. She loves working within large organizations and creating leadership programs and revamping things like performance reviews. So she would, she even said she would hate my job where I'm home all day and I do some one-on-one -on -one coaching and she would hate it. But she wrote this book and, you know, it didn't, didn't sell like crazy. She didn't have a huge platform outside of her, her job. But a couple years later, out of nowhere, she got a call from Chanel inviting her to interview for a global um, senior vice president of people development. This was a role she could have never dreamed up for herself. And they read her book. That book helped get her the job. And so even though she didn't use it to build a platform and monetize a business, it certainly became priceless in mm. terms of helping her move into this next incredible role with Chanel. It reminds me of another story you tell in the book. It's a photographer who's, I remember his first name, I think it's Daniel. Uh, I can't remember yeah, his, exactly. his last Dan name. Yeah, exactly, Dan Kelligan. Yeah, and, and a lot of folks can kind of chalk up what happened to him as, oh, he just got a lucky break. And, and I've had people accuse me of, of uh, the success that I have had with the podcast on the way being a lot of a series of lucky breaks. But what they don't realize is the, you know, the 26 years in radio that preceded this or the, the, the fact that I've been doing a podcast for four years or the fact that I read every book before interviewing every, you know, there's a lot of work that go, goes into mm. these lucky breaks. Uh, what is it, Louis Pasteur, who said, um, chance favors the prepared mind, I think. The, the harder yes. I work, the luckier I become, or something like that. I love that. Yeah, and how cool. What a great pivot example you are, that you did radio for 26 years. And so it makes a ton of sense <laughs> to pivot into podcasting. You're already so well set up for it. Well, uh, to the Dan example, his story was that he really cultivated a high-quality Instagram account. He he posted as if he was being paid for every single photograph. Mm -hmm. Everything was thoughtful, shot beautifully, uh, stylish, interesting. He was a photographer for Groupon, just photographing venues for them. It wasn't his dream job. But then one day, Instagram decided to feature him as top users in Chicago. And overnight, his profile went from 7,000 
to 100,000. And after that, he started getting paid sponsorships with Warby Parker, hotel brands, travel brands, getting all his travel paid for and funded. And now he reaches out to brands and says, hey, I'm going to be in Paris and I- I'm happy to shoot pictures of your hotel and post on my account. Would you comp our room? I mean, really cool <laughs> to see what he's doing. And so, yes, it looks like a lucky break that Instagram featured him. And in many ways it is, but he was ready for it. And he was cultivating such a beautiful account to put himself in that position. And I think most people who are successful will absolutely say, yes, there have been some incredible lucky breaks and serendipities. And I worked my ass off. So I really do think it's a combination of both. And part of becoming discoverable and working hard is about cultivating serendipity and luck and, and inviting it by putting oneself out there in ways that feel really good. Well, Jenny, I know you have a a private community, which I believe is called Momentum. Is that right? Yes, that's right. We have our own uh, private community here as well, the Read to Lead University Book Club. And as I uh, mentioned to you uh, a few days ago, we had some questions submitted by folks that are a part of that uh, group. And Pivot is our our book this month. Savan submitted quite a few, and he forced me to have to to have to pick just one. But I think this is the best among the ones he submitted. And I, I'm assuming he's asking this. I think at least he's asking this on on behalf of his wife. And he asks if you have any suggestions for moms pivoting back into working outside the home after having not worked outside the home for for a number of years. Yeah, because you're a book club, I I feel good recommending. (laughs) There's a new book called Work, Pause, Thrive, which Mm. is about exactly that, women pausing for motherhood and and busting the myth Mm. that it's going to somehow derail your career. And then another one that I really love is called Drop the Ball, and that's new. It's by Tiffany Dufu about kind of how she's maintained her sanity with two small children, a husband working abroad, and how she keeps things running in life and work. Mm. On the pivot front, I would say start small and and do start with the plant stage. So what's working? What do you already have experience at? What are you good at? What do people come to you for advice on most often? And what do you, what does success look like? Do you want to go back to work full time, part time, do consulting work? Um, do you want to start your own business? There are so many options now. So for example, my friend Tara, she was at Google 11 years. She decided to work remotely first, moved to New Orleans, met a man, got pregnant, had a baby all within a year, took a year off. And then she thought, okay, I'm ready to re-enter the workforce. So she got a job at a startup. Three months later, they had acquired funding, but then they reorged and she was out of a job. So almost by default, she fell into consulting where instead of trying to get one full-time job, she wanted more flexibility. So she was really good at running events and she started consulting as an events manager. And she's really also into social impact work. So she's becoming discoverable by letting her network know, hey, I'm taking on more clients. And here's the type of work that I love and that I'm interested in. Do you know any organizations who are a fit? Uh, for other moms that I know, you you might be starting something out of your house. You know, I have friends doing some of the companies like Avon or Stella and Dot, or you have something that you're already interested in. It could even be tutoring or doing daycare services from home. I mean, it really has to depend on kind of what type of career track you're interested in and that you want. And from there, we haven't talked about the third stage yet of the pivot method, but it's pilot, which is run small experiments. Don't put too much pressure on yourself to figure the whole thing out overnight. Instead, try to get one client or start to get one thing going with a couple hours a week before you 
dive headfirst back into something if you're not ready yet or pilot different streams of income and just see, well, which of these is going to take off? I remember when I needed to earn a little extra money while I was working at Google in my early days there, I posted three different ads on Craigslist, one for babysitting services, Mm. one for personal organizing. I loved going to people's (laughs) houses like sprucing up their desk area or their living room. Mm. And then three, HTML and CSS tutoring for small business owners. And I very purposely posted all three and just said, well, which one's going to win? You know, (laughs) think of these like racehorses at the Kentucky Derby. (laughs) You just have to put the pilots out there and then they'll show you which is going to take off. Right away, I got one after the next after the next for the HTML and CSS tutoring. Uh. And so that did it. I, I never needed to do the other two activities. I went straight into that and and did that for over a year to earn extra income. And I, that's such a good lesson, too. I know when I when I left the radio company I was working for, um, I did some website and, and mobile app work, uh, neither of which I intended to do long term, but it, it at least kept my head above water and allowed me to kind of look ahead and, and begin planning and paying the bills uh, while I did that. So yeah, I think that's that's fantastic advice. Um, Sherry uh, is always good for a fantastic question, and, and, and this time around is no exception. And she wants to know, personal question here, since New York City is your yellow brick road, what place <laughs> in the world would you most like to visit to grab some retreat-like zen? And what would you most like to do there? Mm. My favorite place for retreat like Zen is Ubud, Bali. Mm. I just love it. It has such a healing energy to it. Just landing at the airport, getting to the city of Ubud is kind of um, an enclave in the middle of the island. It's very, I feel very fortunate with keynote speaking picking up after the book coming out. That was one of my pilots. Didn't know if it would take off when the book was coming out, but I sincerely hoped that it would. Mm -hmm. It's one of the favorite things that I do. And so no sooner do I say something like, oh, I would really love to go back to Amsterdam. And a month later, a gig has come through to go to Amsterdam. So um, (laughs) right now I'm traveling so much for speaking engagements that I'm just kind of going with the flow. I don't know if it counts in the retreat category, but I've never been to Japan. Mm. So I have like an energetic wish list uh, note out to the universe that, hey, if any gigs come up in Japan, it would be really, really amazing to get out there or even even a gig in the Middle East. Um, I've just never done any speaking out there. So uh, who knows? We'll see. Maybe by saying it on this podcast, I'm <laughs> discoverable now. Something will materialize. <laughs> You've spoken it into existence. <laughs> yes, we'll see. I'll report back. Well, we've talked about plant, uh, scan, uh, pilot. There are a couple of other stages to this to this process. Let's spend just a, a couple of moments on launching. And I think probably one of the areas that, that most people, I would imagine, struggle with is, am I launching too soon or did I wait too long? How can we avoid that uh, conundrum? What's some of your advice there? Well, launch is so you can pivoting is not a linear process it's not meant to me and our careers and businesses certainly are not linear anymore i don't have Mm. to tell any of you listening (laughs) that so plant scan pilot you can do that over and over and over until one of your pilots starts building momentum and enough momentum to maybe move into that direction so the launch is when you've reduced risk yes there's still going to be some risk and uncertainty but you're going to feel more confident that yes it's time to go for it and i joke i wrote this book for high net growth individuals that we don't have FOMO, fear of missing out. We have font, fear of not trying. So most (laughs) high net growth, or I call them impactors, 
you reach a point where the fear of not trying is greater than trying and failing. So the launch moment is when you go all in on the new direction. Maybe it's launching your business, moving teams within your company, launching a new product or service within your business. And so you asked a great question, Jeff, is how do you know when you're launching too soon or too late? Um, at the end of the day, almost everyone I interviewed said it came down to a gut feeling. Mm. But there are also considerations like financial. Maybe you're waiting to launch until you've saved enough or gotten a bonus or till your side hustle is picking up a certain amount of monthly income. Maybe you're waiting to launch based on date date based timing. So I'll launch in the summer when my partner is home from his teaching job or her teaching gig um, or date based. I had one client working at a large tech company. He said, there's no way I'm going back after Christmas. He'd been there 10 years. And so his date was the end of the year. Other launch timing criteria, waiting for a decision. Maybe you've applied to get an advanced degree somewhere. So those are various factors. And there's a free, there's a ton of free templates around each of these things I've mentioned online. So Jeff, I'm sure you'll link to that in the show notes. But ultimately, it's asking yourself to say, okay, well, how will I know when something has taken off enough to launch in that direction? And what I find, certainly for those of us who are self-employed, but this can even apply to projects within your team at work, is that the really agile pivoters are always in a state of plant scan pilot, plant scan pilot. And so the more you're doing that, the less caught off guard you are by any one pilot or a stream of income or project not working out. And you're sort of more prepared to just say, oh, hey, isn't that funny? Look at these two things taking off. And this third thing went nowhere, even though I thought it would be a huge success. So, okay, let me keep keep investing in what's working and keep shifting and, and growing in that direction. As I mentioned earlier, I pivoted a number of times within the last company I worked for. Uh, but while I desired at, at some point, uh, someday to pivot out of all of that entirely and work for myself, the idea of that just scared me to death. Uh, I did manage in, in 2013, along with the input of my wife, to decide that by the end of that year, I was going to do exactly that. We didn't know exactly what that was going to look like, but that's what we were going to do. Well, midway through that year, the decision was made for me when I was let go. That sort of forced me into that decision of, you know, even before I kind of felt like I was ready. But I, but I also believe that when the end of the year came, I would have found some excuse not to do it. And, <laughs> and so it, it, it just it gave me that shove that I needed, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, that I'm not sure I, I would have done it on my own. And that is so much more common than you'd realize. Mm. I've interviewed and I've asked so many people who say that they've gotten laid off. No doubt it's traumatic in the moment and mm. it can be shocking and there's time required to process. But so far, every single person I've ever asked has said that was actually the best thing that ever happened to me. They said, I was ready to make a change. I didn't have the courage to do that, do it. And as shocking as it was, this gave me the kick that I needed. And so it's almost Maybe there is a word for it, but it's almost the flip side of serendipity. We talked about cultivating serendipity. Mm. It's like if you don't make the move, but you're ready and you're taking those steps, sometimes change will choose you and the life <laughs> circumstances will be such that, okay, ready or not, here you go. There are so many blessings in disguise like that where I was just giving a talk and someone said halfway through my talk, he checked his phone and a rejection email came through from a company that he had been dying to work for, interviewing for months. And he just thought, well, this must be a sign that if I got this email midway through this pivot talk and figuring out next steps that it's going to be okay. Mm. And I told him right now it feels incredibly disappointing, but I, I have a feeling you're going to look back and think, thank goodness I didn't get that job. <laughs> I actually said to a friend of mine at lunch about a month before 
that situation happened to me, probably the best thing that could happen would be for me to get get the push, get the shove. Uh, and lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. And I haven't looked back. <laughs> it's just straight ahead from here. Awesome. Um, you mentioned doing more public speaking uh, a moment ago. I-, I wanted to ask you, Jenny, if you have any tips for delivering an impactful and memorable public talk, what advice would you give, especially now that you're in high demand and have ramped that up quite a bit in your business? Mm. Well, one fun fact or interesting fact, I used to get hives practically on my (laughs) neck and chest when speaking in front of a room and to the point where in college if we just had to go around and say our names I would have a super heart pounding out of my chest I would be incredibly nervous just to introduce myself even last week I was introducing myself at a conference that I was the keynote for (laughs) and they had us do a round of introductions that morning and I was so nervous Mm. I was standing against the wall what am I going to say oh god you know and I was the keynote speaker Mm. so um, I did a series called speak like a pro I interviewed 25 experts and practically every single one said they still get nervous and that they take it as a good sign, like an athlete getting ready for the big day. I even, uh, when I was at Google, I gave a, an important presentation to a room of managers and directors. And afterward, my manager took me aside and he said, you know, that was a great presentation, but I do have some feedback. He said, while you were talking, your whole neck and chest turned red mm. and it, you appeared very nervous. And I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this feedback? Like my body is betraying me. How can I just make my body do something differently? And I said, well, what should I do? And he said, I don't know, maybe wear turtlenecks. So I wore turtlenecks for the next four years. Four years. So Jeff, I think the most helpful thing I can share with everyone listening is what I read in a book. Um, I know, mm. it's really silly. <laughs> Scott Birkin, he wrote a book called um, Confessions of a Public Speaker. Mm. And he said, Anytime you're an animal standing alone on an open plain with no weapons, nowhere to hide, and dozens if not hundreds or thousands of eyeballs staring at you, evolutionarily speaking, you are about to die. (laughs) So if you get nervous, you're human. Your body is doing its job. That's why. You have extra adrenaline from... Yeah, from a very natural fight or flight response. So you just need to give that adrenaline something to do. It could mean pacing before you talk, ideally not on stage. You can squeeze your hands open and closed. You can take a big, deep inhale and a relaxing, ah, because no animal getting chased on the savanna is going to sigh like that. That sends your body into rest and digest mode. All of these tidbits, tricks kind of help get the adrenaline out. And so if it's happening when you're on stage, the worst thing to do is think, Oh my God, I'm nervous. I'm panicking. Everyone's going to know. I'm going to fail. This is going to be horrible. What's wrong with me? Because that's going to make the adrenaline pound even even more. So it's, it's oh, there's my body. It's just doing its job. Sure, I'm nervous. No big deal. Um, I'm going to keep going because we can't change our evolutionary physiology. It, it is what it is. So to this day, when I get on stage, sometimes I have a shaky voice or a shaky leg and I just know it's going to happen and keep going. And that makes it go away much quickly, much more quickly. Well, if it makes you feel any better, Jenny, despite the fact that I spent as long as I did in radio and any time you turn on the microphone, you know, you're talking to thousands of people, I still get nervous in many, really? of the, any of the, in many of the same ways you just described when it comes to public speaking. And, it, and the more intimate 
the the worse it is. Like the the environment you describe, where you're just going around the room. I'm a part of this epic breakfast group uh, that's been meeting every few months for about a year. A lot of uh, heavy hitters around the the Nashville area. There's like 20 people in this room. The people like Michael Hyatt and and Dan Miller, you know, New York Times bestselling authors, and Ray Edwards and Cliff Ravenscraft and me. And it and it comes my turn and man leading up to that when I know it's going to be my turn I am so stinking nervous uh, I've gotten a little better the more of those we've done and that leads me to my my next thought um, we had a guy named Andy Malinsky on a few months ago I don't know if you've heard of Andy's work uh, he wrote a book called Reach. yeah I love Andy yeah but yeah. stepping outside your comfort zone he talks about this this avoidance paradox and I have I have seen this live itself out in my my own life the more you put it off the more you put off doing something that you know you're inevitably going to have to do. You're going to be asked to, to get up in front of people at some point, give a toast at a wedding, whatever it is. The more you put that off, the more difficult it becomes when you eventually have yes. to do it. If you can just make yourself do it now, it's just going, only going to get easier. It's so true. And that practice really does help. The speakers who look the most casual and funny and relaxed on stage are usually the most rehearsed. You mm. would think it's the opposite. Yeah. And the, the other thing I'll say, because you mentioned radio and I feel this way. I have a podcast called Pivot Podcast, too. Yes. I don't know about you, Jeff, but I got nervous at the start. And then I'm very aware of every little misstep, even on this one where I stumble <laughs> over my words or something. And I had to learn that that uh, this, there's another quote done is better than perfect. Mm. But the goal is just have as authentic as a conversation as we can and keep shipping. Mm. And so I think part of speaking and getting better at it is also, of course, there's going to be imperfections or things that you forget or stumbling over your words or for me, sometimes with, with guests that I interview that I'm so geeking out about, they're my hero, an author hero like Kevin Kelly or mm. Martha Beck. I'm so nervous, you know, I'm, I'm, I try not to be nervous, but I can't help it. And so those, those episodes are not as smooth as the ones where I'm just jamming with a friend and I let it be okay and I release them anyway. So I think part of this is just you got to do it. Know that it's not going to be perfect. Don't beat yourself up when it's done. Keep moving. And of course, you can practice and improve things in between. But ultimately, the goal is not perfect. It's just to produce and get a message out and connect with people. And I don't think anybody listening necessarily expects us to all be perfect robots. <laughs> that <laughs> Sometimes the most humanizing things that occur on stage or in a podcast are screwing up or admitting when you're nervous or, or don't know what to say. And the reality is, uh, though it may not always seem like it, the crowd is rooting for you. I mean, they 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 don't want you to suck any yeah. more than you want to suck, right? <laughs> I love that. It's so true. They want you to succeed. Yes. <laughs> well, I have a just a couple more questions, and and, and sure. I'll let you let you get going here. First of all, I want to ask you. We, we've hit on a lot of different areas. Is there anything else from the book you want to make sure we know about? The biggest thing I would say is is that the real. I have so much fun with the pilot stage. And mm. so that kind of just speaks to, um, I share in the book, uh, mantras we had at Google, get scrappy and launch and iterate, which kind of goes in line with what I was saying about podcasting is don't wait until all conditions are perfect mm -hmm. before you take next steps towards your pivot. Start with one small experiment or a small set of next steps and build slowly and methodically from there that that when it comes to pivoting take the pressure off we put so much pressure on ourselves to know our next move have everything figured out and it's so much easier if you can just say okay what is the one next step that would make the biggest impact and another favorite question what is one next step i could take this week if you just ask those two things every week you'll even start making a ton of progress 
Well, uh, the book's been out now for what about eight months, I guess. Uh, I'd love to know, you know, how that process has gone, what's working, what isn't working, as well as uh, what you and your team are thinking about next. What you're excited about working on that's mm. that's ahead of you. Well, interestingly enough, it was when my first book came out at my very first book signing. Someone said. So what's next? I remember feeling so overwhelmed. Like, <laughs> right. I don't know. I just stared down every gremlin I had to write this thing. So here again, launching Pivot. Same thing. People right away, you know, even at the launch party, I addressed this question. Okay, now what? Hey, what's I gave next? you eight months. And okay. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you feel me once. But I noticed... I was so much calmer this time around not knowing. And I had all these business pilots lined up, some of which took off, others didn't. Mm. Um, things like I trained a team of six pivot coaches. And so that is slowly but surely coming along. It wasn't a um, overnight success, but it's building. And I love knowing that they're there because I'm on the road a lot. Mm. Things like momentum, the private community are growing. On the other hand, I created things like a career conversation toolkit for leaders within organizations, not one taker. On mm. the other hand, Google is now licensing Pivot as global career development training. So That's we're awesome. still working together, which is really great and a testament to the fact that even when we leave an organization, we don't always leave for good. Sometimes it's just changing the format of how we work together. Mm. So, yeah, I'm kind of in just an observation mode of all these different pilots. I'm launching a course called Delegation Ninja. Um, and, mm. and even that's a pilot. I tried to push myself to conceptualize it, build it and launch it within a month and a half and not spend too long on making it the most precious, perfect thing I've ever done. So I enjoy business more when I give myself permission to just try things and and see what works. Mm. Well, we will definitely put a link to all of uh, Jenny's web properties in the show notes. There's lifeaftercollege.org. There is uh, jennyblake.me and also pivotmethod.com. And she said this earlier, but I just want to emphasize this. There are a ton of of resources related to the book at pivotmethod.me or pivotmethod.com, sorry. And, and I know that firsthand because I've been utilizing them as I've been reading the book, getting ready for uh, oh, the book club's meeting on on Wednesday. Uh, and many of those in the club have, have been benefiting from those as well. So so thank you so much for that, Jenny. And thank you so much for your time and for writing this book. I've, I've truly enjoyed this. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. I loved all of your questions and the one from the book club. Thank you all. I'm so honored that it was your selection. And huge thanks to everybody who's here listening. I really appreciate it. Jenny's one of those guests who mentions her favorite books without me even having to ask. So you'll find links to those on our show notes page, along with how to find and connect with Jenny on the web. And of course, a link to find out more about the book Pivot as well. You'll find the show notes page for this episode at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 171 for episode 171. Don't forget to check out what's in store for you as part of the Read to Lead University book club. Just visit readtoleaduniversity.com. We always appreciate ratings and reviews. If you're on iTunes, consider leaving us a rating and review there at readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes or on Stitcher at readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. And remember, if you enjoy the show, chances are people you know will as well. So make sure you're introducing others to the Read to Lead podcast. If they fall in love with it the way you have, well, they'll have you to thank. And so will I. 
Thank you so much for listening. That does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.